You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. We're glad to have you listening in today and uh, want to uh, want you to want to invite you to stay tuned for a veteran story with uh, Pete Mecca, and he has a very very special guest on today that uh, I want urge you to stay tuned and listen to uh, Pete's show. Before we get started, something is something came to my attention yesterday, and. Uh, I've decided to act on it, and it's going to take us a little while to get all of the bits and pieces put together, but we will be working on getting it done. And that is that, to my knowledge, I think different organizations on a local basis have this, but on a national basis, I don't believe there is one. But America's Web Radio has a real close attachment to vets. And uh, we're going to start in the next, we'll be getting out details to you on Facebook and on our website about our veteran prayer line. And part of this is due to my friend uh, that I've talked about many times that uh, is suffering from Agent Orange and is in critical condition in ICU now. And, uh, you know, obviously, I've been praying for him, and I've prayed for America, too, and uh, how important our veterans are, our active duty folks are, and those that have given the ultimate sacrifice. So the way it's going to work is if you have need of prayer, or you have a veteran friend that does, or a neighbor, whatever the circumstance is, just send us their name, and uh, each veteran show will take just a minute or two to mention their name and ask that veterans across the country, the most powerful group of men ever and women ever across the country, you, you can't get a bigger or better group than that. And if we all unite to say a prayer, I think it will help in bringing peace to someone that that needs it. So we'll be starting that, and we'll be uh, continuing to bring you up to date on what's happening and uh, how you do it. And we're not going to give away your your email address or anything else. We, all we ask is if you send us uh, Joe Smith's name with uh, his need, and we'll take it from there. So with that being said, we'll be getting more information out on that. And right now, I'm going to turn it over to Pete Mecca and his guest for a veteran story. It's all yours, Pete. All right. Good morning, America. Welcome to a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I'm your host, Pete Mecca. I have an exciting interview this morning with Hilbert Margot. He and his twin brother fought all the way across Europe in World War II as gunners on a 105-millimeter Howitzer. Gilbert, welcome to the show, sir. Good morning. Good morning to you. Brothers in 1924. Gilbert, uh, tell me a little bit about your childhood. Well, uh, we were born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, my twin brother Howard, we were identical twins. 
and uh, we graduated high school a little over in January of 1942, a little over a, a month after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And uh, we were home only a, a week or so before we entered the University of Florida as freshmen. They had a ROTC program, uh, 105-millimeter howitzers, horse-drawn artillery. The horses were real, the howitzers <laughs> were real, but our rifles were made out of wood. So not really <laughs> prepared for, for combat. But in any event, uh, we were uh, in the ROTC and joined college life, and an Army officer showed up one day and talked to the ROTC students and said if we join an Army Reserve unit, good chance they'll let us remain in college. So October 25th, uh, 1942, we joined an Army Reserve unit, and... Um, a couple of months later, they called our reserve unit to active duty. Well, imagine well, that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we reported to Camp Landing, Florida, April the 3rd, uh, 1943, 13, followed by 13 weeks of basic training, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, ROTC and basic training. We both were trained as gunners on 105-millimeter howitzers. And um, at the end of the 13-week period, uh, we ended up uh, being put into the Army Specialized Training Program, which meant they um, put us in the college Syracuse University <coughs> to begin with, taking courses in engineering. And after about four months there, they transferred us to uh, University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, continuing courses in engineering. And after about three months there, some uh, Army general in Washington decided that they had thousands of 18-, 19-year-old uh, soldiers in colleges, and they needed them uh, for combat duty. So they canceled the program and that's when the Army split us up. My brother Howard was sent to the 104th Timberwolf Division on the Mojave Desert in California in training for the North African campaign. They sent me to uh, 42nd Infantry Division in uh, Camp Gruber, Oklahoma. And your mother did not like you being separated, did she? No, she sure didn't, Pete. And we didn't want... We didn't like being separated either because uh, one thing in the Army, you know, you put together with a bunch of guys from around the country that you don't know any of them, and uh, you're not sure who you can trust until you get some experience. So we wanted to stay together regardless of what action we were going to see or not see. Uh, so we know that at least we had one by one person close by that we could trust in any situation. So, well, What did your mother Howard, do about that, Hilbert? Well, after my brother Howard, he put in three requests to transfer to my outfit because he was in the infantry, 
and wanted to get back in the artillery and no success so he contacted our mother she wrote a letter to President Roosevelt saying that she wanted us to serve together and we wanted to be together so sure enough she got a letter from the White House a couple weeks later saying that as a two star mother her request would be granted and then we had to wait until final orders we got lucky Howard got orders in his division to transfer to my outfit in Oklahoma you know, uh, Margot, I will, will tell you this. I have interviewed a lot of uh, twin brothers and also brothers who served, and their mamas wrote the letters to the White House. And by golly, these mothers got their sons back together. So uh, your mother did her job. <laughs> yeah, well, she was also a, a, a little bit on the aggressive side in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right, look, we had a technical delay up front, so... We're going to have to go to our first break. Uh, folks, we'll be back in just a couple minutes. So everybody stand by. Thank you, Hilbert. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're already back with Hilbert Margot, World War II combat veteran. His mother got his twin brother back in the same unit with Hilbert. Uh, Hilbert, take it from there. What did you guys do after you trained together? Well... Uh, we were in a uh, gun battery in the 42nd Division. A uh, gun battery consisted of four howitzers. Howard was a gunner on number two, and I was a gunner on number three. And, of course, we continued training uh, Oklahoma out in the woods and trails and wherever. Then we got uh, orders in December of uh, 1943 to... Uh, ship overseas. We didn't know where we were headed. We got ended up in the port in New Jersey. And uh, from there, after a few days, they put us on a troop ship, the SS Gordon, and we left New York Harbor in December and headed out. And once we got out to sea, then they told us we were going to uh, disembark in Marseille, France. And, uh, of course, we heard that, and being good geography students in school, media thought was, this was wintertime, of course, we're going to be in southern sunny France. Looking forward to it. So, uh, one morning, we looked outside on deck, and sure enough, we saw the white cliffs of Dover. So we said, well, we know we're off the coast of England, went through, proceeded from there uh, into the Mediterranean, past the Rock of Gibraltar, and landed at Marseille, France. Instead of, we were in southern France, but it wasn't sunny. It was very, very cold. Uh, From there, they uh, moved us to a very 
rocky, barren, windy, cold area called CP2, Command Post 2. And we had to be there for several weeks because our infantry uh, regiments had uh, rushed over to Europe uh, ahead of us uh, when the Battle of the Bulge broke out. So they rushed them over there without any support whatsoever. We were in direct support of the 222nd Infantry uh, Regiment throughout combat. But here they were in combat with no support. The rest of the division was on its way. Uh, wow. So they got hit pretty hard. But uh, anyhow, after uh, waiting and going into maneuvers while they got replacements, because they had to get replacements for those that they lost, killed, wounded, captured, whatever, to uh, so reinforcements uh, received uh, some minimum training and then we went into combat in uh, a village, a town called Wingen sur Motor in France and uh, we thought we went into a gun position close to midnight one night and uh, we thought we were still on maneuvers but at the first light of dawn the next morning when shells start flying over our heads in both directions then we realize hey we're in a combat situation <laughs> welcome to France right <laughs> yeah <laughs> so anyhow from there you know after uh, firing missions towards the Germans we were dug in on one side of the motor river they called it a river. We referred to it as a wide creek. Hmm. On the other side of the Motor River was a what they called a mountain. We called a very high hill. The Germans were dug in on the other side, so they would fire shells over our head, targets behind us where we had the heavier howitzers, the 155 millimeters, and behind them the 240 millimeters. And uh, then the guns behind us would fire over our heads to the Germans. It took you just a couple of days to realize, do the difference in the sound, which shells were incoming and outgoing. And from there, we moved north in France and going through different villages, cities, towns. Uh, our mission and the artillery in direct support of the infantry, we never set up our howitzers inside any city or town. We were always on the outskirts firing uh, missions into targets that were in and near the cities and towns to give the infantry guys some softening up, so to speak, before they would go in and, and clean out uh, any snipers or whatever that was left in the upcoming town and the only, then we would go as the infantry moved forward to the next uh, objective then we would uh, ride through those towns and see the damage destruction and uh, whatever uh, that uh, we didn't know couldn't distinguish which was damage from our howitzer shells and 
which were from the aerial bombardments. And, um, <clears throat> so we moved forward, and then we crossed over into the Rhine River into Germany. And, uh, Gilbert, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. You, you, you're describing shells from the, the 155s and 240s from the American side going over your head, and then you got the Germans firing their weapons, probably the 88s, which was an awesome weapon the Germans had, and you're down there with the 105s. Is there any way that you can describe the sound of that combat to us? Well, you know, we would, every time we would fire a mission, and of course as gunners, uh, when we got the command from either our sergeant or corporal to fire, our job was to pull the rope, which was a lanyard, to fire the weapon. So, of course, it created a lot of noise <laughs> and loud noise and uh, percussion. So, we, when we asked the questions, what do we do? Do we have any kind of earplugs or anything? The answer always was, in training and in combat, just open your mouth and that'll even out the percussion wave. But most artillerymen especially would tell you that uh, the heart of hearing is in later life they have hearing problems. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I can imagine. I mean, with your guns going off and the shells going over your head each way, were you even aware or could you hear the shells going over when you're firing the 105 millimeter? Well, you know, in combat, you only know what's happening and what you're hearing and seeing in your immediate area. Uh, a few miles to your left, a few miles to your right, you don't really know what's going on in those areas. We <laughs> yeah. just don't know. You just know what, what you're seeing and what you're doing. And you see, uh, on the, each uh, howitzer consisted of a 10-person crew. You had a sergeant, a corporal, and uh, eight other men to prepare the ammunition and fire the howitzers. Occasionally, we had to clean the howitzers, howitzers clean out the bores to get rid of some powder residue. Uh, we were outdoors from the time we arrived in Marseille, France, until VE Day, or actually a few days after VE Day, which was May the 8th of 1945. We were outdoors 24-7. We had to sleep and be within a few yards of our howitzer at all times because we could get fire missions at any time. So that's where we stayed whether and of course through the winter months uh, we you know had sleet, snow, cold, temperatures, whatever. But we were outdoors. We had our individual sleeping bags and that was it. If I recall properly, that winter was the worst or most severe winter in, in a long time in Europe. Is that correct? Very correct. At least that's what we were led to believe, and of course we felt it. And it yeah. was a matter of, 
you know, doing whatever you could for survival, so to speak. That was always uh, present in your mind. And, you know, there were little things that we did occasionally, uh, sometimes if it got real cold. And, of course, trying to dig a foxhole under those conditions wasn't easy either because the ground was quite, <laughs> quite frozen in some areas. It just depended on the terrain. And as far as the, how far apart our four howitzers were, also was determined by the situation and the terrain. Sometimes our four howitzers, we could barely see the uh, how, other howitzers. Uh, and other times we were a lot closer together. And your brother was on number two, and you were on number three. Right, right. Wow. And um, so to move along, we uh, continued on into Germany. The first town that uh, the division captured in Germany was called Don, D-A-H-N, Germany. And there again, we were not inside the city itself. We were on the outskirts. The infantry guys was on the inside. And... uh, from there, and uh, we were given our first rest period. We had a two-day rest period at that point, which was mm-hmm. a welcome uh, event for us to sort of be able to relax and uh, take care of some things like maybe brushing your teeth or <laughs> trying to uh, take turns getting a little haircut from one another because each uh, gun battery was, before we went overseas, we were given a very large barber kit outfit with all kind of shears and scissors and combs, and um, and that's what we used to take turns giving ourselves haircuts or getting shaves, whatever, but at least uh, we could, uh, we had little sterno cans that we could light a little fire and eat our uh, cans, uh, prepared food cans that were inside the C rations and K rations. So it gave us an opportunity also for the kitchen crew to catch up with us and prepare at least a couple of hot meals for us, which was a welcome treat. And also mail call. That was Uh important because the only time we got mail call was when we had a day and a half or two days where we could uh, have a rest period. The 45th Division was always on our left, and the 36th Division was on our right. So one of the three divisions would be in a rest period while the other two moved forward. So between the three divisions, uh, one at a time would have a couple of days for a rest period. (laughs) Uh, When that... Uh, uh, the cooks caught up with you guys and got hot meals. Uh, what kind of hot meals did you get? Well, you know, we didn't have a menu. Whatever they had to cook, <laughs> we ate. <laughs> and we were happy to get it. And yeah. I remember on one occasion, we had a rest period, and it was mail call, and we got a package from home. And we opened the package, and inside was a a salami that our <laughs> mother had shipped to us, and it was uh, the 
salami, you know, had the covering skin on it. It was covered with sort of like mold. We washed it off. <laughs> and then I noticed not too far away was a farmhouse. And I went over there, got in a hen house, and I liberated a few eggs. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And brought them back. And Howard and I, we started a little fire. And we had uh, salami and eggs. And I mean, the odor. Uh, the guy, other guys came right over to us. And, of course, <laughs> they wanted to eat some of the salami and eggs. <laughs> and to us, that was a real outstanding treat. That was one of the uh, best I, meals. I, I, bet, I bet that was great for you guys. All right, we're going to our second break, Gilbert. We'll be right back. Folks, stay with us. We'll be back in just a couple okay. minutes. I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related stuff. That's Tuesday, 1500 hours, America's Web Radio. And again, want to remind everybody that we're starting a new program here. Uh, well, a new program, several new programs, as a matter of fact, uh, following... Uh, a vet story today will be our new program called Your Estate, and it's with uh, an attorney, Stanley Turner, who is a, that's his practice, his estates, wills, and so forth, and uh, how important they are that you have one. The other thing that I want to mention again is that we're starting the Veterans Prayer Line, and uh, stay tuned and keep going back to our website and checking it out, and we'll I have, we'll be filling you in on all the details just as soon as it's all put together. So we'll be, uh, coming back in just a minute. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army with training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering. An Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with Hilbert Margot, World War II combat veteran. Uh, he and his twin brothers served as gunners on a 105-millimeter howitzer. And uh, we left off where they were having a, a little dinner of salami and stolen chicken eggs. Uh, Hilbert, did you have to feed the whole platoon? Pete, I have to correct you. They were, we liberated those eggs. <laughs> we, we didn't steal them. We liberated <laughs> Okay, Hilbert, I'll give you that one. <laughs> so, so Anyhow. The guys, go ahead. I bet the guys did swarm over when they started smelling that, didn't they? So... Anyhow, uh, when we would go into uh, any gun position, just as a little story, uh, if there were any buildings or houses uh, nearby, uh, one of some of us would be assigned to go into a house or a building, check it out, find out who's in there, because if there's anybody in there, we need to know who they are, uh, just for protection of, uh, of course, the gun crews and the other soldiers involved in our gun battery. So one house I went into one day and 
there was an elderly woman in there, a house trial, and I told her in my best German to show me around. I want to know who else is in there because she insisted she was the only occupant of the house. But after looking at all the different rooms, closets, told her, let's go down to the basement. We go down to the basement. First thing I see was a wooden keg. Had a lid on it and a rock. I thought, boy, maybe there's some pickles in there. So I removed the lid and the rock, and I saw it was sauerkraut. So I took a handful of sauerkraut and put it in my mouth, and I said, um, sehr gut sauerkraut. And the woman said, you speak such good German. <laughs> oh, so, me. Anyhow, uh, from there we moved uh, through... Uh, Captured uh, cities, towns like uh, Würzburg, Schweinfurt, Nuremberg, and then uh, after Nuremberg, uh, captured a, I remember a suburb of Nuremberg, which was a German uh, air base, and uh, we set up and made sure that was all under control, and then from there, uh, we moved, and the next military objective was Munich. And we were riding on a two-lane country road about nine or ten miles north of Munich. This was early, very early, the morning of April 29, 1945. And um, we got, suddenly we got orders to pull off to the right side of the road, there was a wooded area on both sides of the road, but on the right side was a open area just just large enough to accommodate our four howitzers. Uh, that was the closest we'd ever been together in a gun position. And we set up our howitzers, fired some missions in the direction of Munich. And uh, everybody smelled a very strong, distinct odor. And one of our uh, Jeep drivers came by and he said, there must be a chemical factory over on the woods on the other, the left side of the road due to the odor. Uh, my brother Howard was very close. He came over to me and he said, he doesn't think it's a chemical factory. It reminds him when we were young children, our mother would go to a meat market to buy a freshly killed chicken. And then she'd take the chicken home because in those days you had to buy the whole chicken. You couldn't buy just parts. And she would hold the chicken over the gas flame of the stove in the kitchen to burn off any remaining pin feathers. And so doing, it would burn the, some of the skin and the fat of the chicken. And he said, that's the odor that reminds him of. So I asked our gun sergeant for permission Howard and I to go over and see what is over there and report back. He granted permission but told us don't stay very long because we don't know how long we're going to be in that position. So we went through the woods and the first thing we saw was a line of railroad boxcars. We climbed over between two of the cars and we got on the other side and the first thing we saw in addition to some infantry guys they had uh, 
preceded us, of course, and they had some of the railroad boxcars, the sliding doors were open. And the first one we saw were filled with dead bodies. Mm-hmm. And uh, one in particular that we took a picture of. We had a little brownie box camera that we had liberated somewhere along the way. <laughs> the only film we had was one roll of film that was inside the camera, so we were very careful taking any pictures. So we took a picture of that one uh, boxcar. Uh, the nearest body had his leg hanging out from the boxcar. Not a pretty sight. Then we saw several other boxcars, similar picture. Then we saw some soldiers going through an entrance gate. There was a building there not too far away. And we followed them through the gate into a very large open area. And then we saw just walking around. Everything was quiet. There was no nothing really going on. Quiet, just soldiers sort of moving around. And um, we saw uh, a few uh, people that were very haggard-looking, more like skeletons, leaning up against one of the barracks buildings. And uh, there again, we didn't know anything about such camps. The only reason why we knew that we were uh, near a town called Dachau was because we had seen the road sign saying Dachau. And uh, that was the town of Dachau. And this as we later learned, this was the Dachau prison camp that we were in. Wow. And so, as I say, there wasn't a lot going on, and we we knew we couldn't stay long, so we stayed maybe 20 minutes inside the camp altogether. And, of course, we saw some other piles of dead bodies in a few places, and then went back and reported back to our gun position and sure enough about 20 minutes later we got orders to pull out and head towards Munich and of course what we learned about the camp and the adjoining huge very large German army camp was what we learned well after the war ended and got all the details of the history of the camp and so forth but being there we didn't know what to make of it because we just didn't know Uh, uh, All the different camps where uh, a lot of atrocities took place uh, was not, liberate those camps was not the military objective. The military objective was to liberate Europe from the Nazi regime. So, and uh, from there... Well, you know, Hilbert, I have, uh, Hilbert, I have talked to several guys who were they were either liberating the uh, prison camps, uh, sometimes quite by accident. They, know, they didn't even know what was there. But uh, uh, the, the guys that went into these camps, like you and your brother, and guys who liberated them, and then they had to deal with the prisoners that were still alive and had to deal with all the dead bodies, That those images have remained with those guys and probably you for the rest of your lives. That's true, isn't it? Yeah, very true, and you know, I've in various speaking engagements uh, often been asked, well, how did you feel when you went in and 
you saw these dead bodies, whether it was in the boxcars or otherwise, and said, well, I can't say you ever get used to seeing such things, but by the time you get there, we got to Dachau, we had seen enough death and destruction where you sort of get immune to seeing it. In other words, the shock is is, uh, before you ever got that far. Uh, yeah. There is a definite shock when you see the first uh, dead bodies, dead soldiers, whether they were Americans or Germans, uh, dead horses, whatever. Uh, and once you get over that initial shock, you see a lot more of it, but you don't have the same uh, shock feeling, so to speak. You never get hardened to it or used to it, but it is a different feeling. I can imagine. I, I, Hilbert, I, I never told you this, but I interviewed a United States Marine that was on uh, Ilshima, the uh, island right off of, uh, I think it was Okinawa, uh, where Ernie Powell was killed, uh, the great correspondent from World War II. Uh, he said he walked right past Ernie Powell uh, when he had gotten killed. And I said, man, that must have been a um, heartbreak for you guys. And um, Ralph said, no, not really. He was just another guy, just just another dead soldier, uh, another dead body. And so I, I guess in a way, it, 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 I know in Vietnam you get numb after a while. Uh, you guys really saw something we didn't, and that's, that's the concentration camps over in Europe. And I know you guys just can't get used to that, but uh, God bless you, man. Uh, and after Doc Cow, where'd you go, Hilbert? Pardon? Yeah, after Doc Cow, where'd you guys go? Oh, yeah, well, uh, the next objective, of course, was Munich, uh, which was well, we said it, it was captured on April the 30th of 1945 when went to Germany, uh, Munich, and Dachau for the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Dachau. Uh, approach introduces some German officials, uh, the mayor of Munich and governor of Bavaria and so forth, and they thanked us myself and two other liberators in the 42nd Division. They thanked us for liberating Munich, and I looked at them, I said, well, at the time, we thought we captured it. <laughs> their, response, their response was, no, you liberated Munich from the Nazis because Munich was the location of the original Nazi headquarters was in oh. Munich. So... Uh, Munich, it really was uh, very limited combat. It was almost surrendered. And uh, the uh, American forces were actually greeted uh, as welcoming heroes, so to speak, by that point. Uh, So if you couldn't find anybody in talking to any uh, local citizens, you couldn't find anybody... Uh, after the war ended, that was uh, a, a Nazi. Uh, you know, none of them. They all said, <laughs> yeah, how about, yeah. why not? Uh, yeah. Okay, we are going, uh, Hilbert, we've got to go to our last break, and we'll be right back with Hilbert uh, uh, Margot, World War II combat veteran. Stay with us, folks. 
Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related stuff. That's Tuesday, 1500 hours, America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with Hilbert Margo, World War II combat veteran, served with his twin brother as gunners on 105-millimeter howitzers. Hilbert, uh, you had a rather rude introduction to the ME-262 German jet fighter. You want to tell the folks about being introduced to that jet fighter? Yeah, well, <laughs> something you never forget once it happens. But, you know, one morning uh, we were had our howitzers ready to fire, and suddenly I had to relieve myself, go to the bathroom. So no bathroom, of course, in sight. So on those occasions, you had to move about 50 or so yards away from the howitzer, dig yourself a hole, and drop your trousers and squat down and relieve yourself. So that was a position I was in, and suddenly out of nowhere I look up and I see a German, the one and only German jet fighter plane that I ever saw. And it looked like he was, and those things were extremely fast. And in training, we had uh, been trained to recognize the silhouettes of all different Allied aircraft and German aircraft. So we knew about that the Germans had the first jet planes, but we were also told that they were not maneuverable and they could move fast in a straight line, do strafing and stuff. So I look up and suddenly I see this German jet plane coming straight at me. <laughs> uh, and it all happens very fast. And at one point I felt that he was so close to me, uh, I could almost reach up and shake hands with the pilot. And this was, of course, just a, a second or two. And I thought at first he was going to be strafing right where I was at. But eh, luckily he was strafing the heavier guns uh, behind us. And I would tell you, uh, in a situation like that, uh, you can, it helps to relieve yourself. <laughs> 
but <laughs> there's nothing you can do because it, it, it starts and finishes just in a matter of seconds. But that was an unusual experience that I did have. <laughs> okay, uh, Hilbert, where were you and your uh, twin brother when the war ended, when you knew that the war was finally over? and Did you celebrate, or, or tell us a little bit about that day? Well, we were actually uh, not too far from the Austrian border uh, when the E-Day, of course, was announced. War was over in Europe, but actually, once we passed Munich, uh, which was say April the thirtieth, the E Day was May the eighth. Uh, that period in there, uh, we knew the war was about over because the Germans were in full retreat. Uh, actually, we we hardly fired our howitzers. During that period, it was a mopping up operation for the infantry guys, and a lot of the infantry guys were looking for rides. We, uh, in, a, in our two-and-a-half-ton army vehicle, we had a driver and a sergeant in the front, and the cab, and the corporal, and the other seven soldiers. We were in the back of the truck. We could accommodate two or three infantry guys riding with us in the back of the truck, plus an infantry guy, uh, two of them, one on each of the front fender of the truck, because it was stop-and-go traffic, so to speak. Uh, we could sit and then move a little bit and stop and move a little bit and stop. So we knew that basically the war was really over uh, before we ever got to the Austrian border. Mm-hmm. And... Um, in fact, I remember, uh, I guess it was close to May the 8th or that period, where we'd go through some small towns and civilians would be lined up on both sides of the road. Uh, there again, uh, with waving and welcoming and almost like a re- rehearsed chorus. And this went on for miles, and through one village to the next, civilians would be hollering out in German, of course, the war will not be over until you defeat the Russians. They welcomed the American soldiers. Yeah, yeah, they they welcomed the American soldiers, but they were very afraid of the Russians, and for good reason. But, um, so anyhow, we... We moved uh, into Austria not too far when the war was over. And after uh, about a week and uh, just inside uh, Austria, we were ordered to return back over the border into Germany uh, and stay there for maybe another week. And then they told us to move to the Salzburg, Austria area because... The French army was taking over uh, our area in southern Germany. So we went into the, became the Army of Occupation, and my unit, uh, gun battery, we lived in an old monastery on the outskirts of Salzburg. This monastery had been built in the late 1800s, so it wasn't exactly the most comfortable facility. 
but at least we had they had army cots there they put up and so we could a dining room to have meals and what they did during the army of occupation we had assignments they called them duties and we were assigned from one day to the next to do different things in fact nearby there was a uh, former Austrian army stockade and they used that uh, to house SS uh, German SS officers that were prisoners and we had to actually pull guard duty 24-7 around that stockade and we did have a lot of snow days in fact we had snow I remember May the 1st 2nd and 3rd before VE Day, we had three straight days of snow. And then in the, this Salzburg, uh, Austria area, we had a number of snow days, and we had to pull guard duty walking around that stockade in the snow. <laughs> and, of course, other, other things, that duties that we performed, you know, that took place, uh, and a lot of things that uh, we just had to do, we... Among other things, remember we had to take uh, these uh, SS prisoners uh, every morning. Some of us that were assigned to it, we'd have to take them in army trucks up in the surrounding uh, hills, mountain areas, and cut down trees. Then they had to chop it up for firewood, and then we had them load up the firewood onto trucks, take it down into Salzburg, to give out to the local bakeries and uh, some civilians to use as firewood to cook, to use uh, as fuel for their stoves, the bakers to bake bread so they could give out to the population and so forth and so on. So that was the kind of things that we did. I had one uh, trip that I had to go with another soldier to uh, uh, Italy. Uh, Genoa, Italy, where they had a grain ship there that came either from the U.S. or Canada with a, a load of uh, grain, and uh, they put it on hopper cars, hopper railroad cars, and he and I had one of the uh, box cars in the middle of the train to ride shotgun to make sure the train got safely back to Salzburg from Italy uh, to be there again distributed for the army's use plus the local bakers to bake bread well, and whatever so those are the kind yeah. of things that occupied us yeah okay you guys were finally shipped home we're almost out of time but you guys were shipped home uh, in March of 46 and uh, you I guess your mama was glad to see her twin boys come home safe right Oh, yeah, we landed, and believe me, every soldier would tell you, returning from Europe to see the Statue of Liberty when the ship arrived in New York Harbor was a most welcome sight. <laughs> and from there, uh, they transported us back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where we had our basic training for discharge. We were discharged on April the 9th. In 1946, a little over three years after we uh, entered the army, 
active service. And uh, from there, we got home. We took off. We both took off our complete army uniforms from head to toe, and we decided to donate them to a different army, the Salvation Army. And I decided to put put the military experience behind us, and that stayed true for many, many years. We never, never talked about uh, military experience, not to our wives, not to our children. It just wasn't a thing that we felt was necessary to do because, you know, during the war, whether you were in the military or you were a civilian, everybody participated in some aspect, whether they worked in some factory or worked at the USO uh, or whatever, did some effort. Time's up. Involved in the war effort. So we felt everybody had their own story, so they didn't need to listen to ours. So until, never talked about it until maybe 10, 11 years ago, when it became uh, somewhat uh, uh, request by different organizations, whatever, uh, to start talking about it. All right. And, and and thank God you, you you tell your story. It's a story that needs to be told, Hilbert. Uh, we're about at the end of the show. Fantastic interview, Hilbert. Thank you so much for your service, uh, you and your brother. Uh, you lost Howard in 2017, I believe, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. He went over the rainbow February the 9th, just before our 93rd birthdays three years ago. All right. And then this coming February, you'll be how old, Gilbert? 97. 97. And I'm, oh, I've been blessed because I got my mother's genes and she lived to 102. Okay, got to go. You live longer than that. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much, Gilbert. Uh, folks, okay, we'll see Pete. you next, next week. Great interview, great interview. Uh, okay. So long, everybody. Okay. See you next week. Bye-bye. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.